Hello and welcome back to the Left Field Thinking Podcast. Today, Elliot and I were thrilled to talk to the current South Africa men's head coach, Gareth Ewing. We had a wide-ranging chat, but we start off by just trying to understand a bit more about the restrictions and constraints on his international programme. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. There's a good number of the guys that actually actually always live overseas. They, they work as well as play. So, yeah, it's a fair chunk. And um, they kind of do it for half a season or they, they pick up a few games here or there where, where they can they can find a club that needs somebody at short notice. Yeah. So we've got a fair number of guys that travel back and forth. So how does, how does that impact the program? What, what are your sort of meetups like? Well, that's our biggest challenge really is, is not being centralised. So <clears throat> what we try to do is, is, is balance training and preparation immediately prior to competitions. Mm-hmm. So we might, you know, if we're playing a series, we'll get together the week before and we'll train the week before. And uh, then we spend a lot of time with, with kind of regional HP training sessions and, and around the country so or around the world, really. So the guys in Europe will try and get together whenever they can or just we just try and try and monitor what guys are doing. So we actually struggle. Our biggest, one of our biggest problems is actually just lack of contact time. And um, we just got to try and make the most of it, to be honest. When they're having regional meetups, do you attend those? Depending on, depending on the budget, I travel once a week to go and, and, and join their session. So, so what we did in this last, this last 10 weeks that we just did before, at the end of last year was we had one in Durban and one in Cape Town and one in Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. So I led the one in Johannesburg. I uh, had an assistant coach and, and kind of the, the local state team head coaches run the, um, the, the, the sessions in the other regions, and I was coming down every second week to each side. So that was just because he had money. Otherwise, I, I would leave them to run it by themselves. <clears throat> and, and what sort of say would you have in that or in, in terms of ethos and what's being executed? Uh, <clears throat> so I'd, I'd, I obviously designed the whole thing. Um, so what I like to do is obviously I, I trust those coaches to be able to design their own training sessions. Uh, but, but i I gave the technical focus mm-hmm. and then, and left them to it basically. And then that quite often send me, send me clips and just send me direct feedback. So all the players knew what was expected of them. And it was a, it was a fully technical block. We didn't do anything in terms of, of, of team play. It was just about, you know, one of our big, big focus points is, being better at hockey so you know if, if you look at us as a hockey team and I'm sure you've seen us play a few times is we, we're technically quite weak so it's just about building that and becoming just better at executing hockey skills in general and then uh, taking it forward into into the tactical stuff once we can execute sustainably so, Would you so say that was that a lot, what a lot of the, the HP stuff is about you know would you say that technically that's something that's changed over the last few years? I always recall South Africa previously being very technical. I I think it slipped a little bit um, because our, our leagues are not consistently strong. Mm. Um, so so you're not being tested week on week. So so you're not getting found out for making a technical error. So it's interesting that you say we, we're quite strong. I think. I think we had a phase of, of guys a few years ago who were who were excellent as hockey players, and they had they were just naturally technically strong. 
Mm. And I think we've probably had a, a, some really strong technical coaching with a guy like Paul Revington as the head coach back in those days. So I think we got a little bit away from that and had a big focus on tactics over the last few years. And I want to pull that back towards just being better technically first and then tactically we'll develop as we go. I think we've improved quite a lot in the last six months. I think guys are paying a little bit more attention to it. And and I do think we've it's been helped that we've got a good group of guys who play overseas who've, who've been more available in the last few months and have been available maybe in the, in the two years prior. Yeah. So that's also just raised our technical standard overall again. So that's, you know, complex, isn't it? So with limited time, you're, you're making the decision that the, the, the tech, if, if you have a technical focus, it will have a bigger bang for its butt when you get into competition. Absolutely. Um, you know, tactically, we keep it, we keep it quite simple. We've got, we've got a lot better. I think we, you know, starting with the coach before me, we, we've, we've got, we've got a lot better in terms of being able to, 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 to defend zonally. Um, and that's helped us from a pressing point of view to be more consistent. And I think it's just been, you know, we, we keep it quite simple. I don't think there's anything there that people aren't going to pick up quite easily by looking at us play. But but the, the better we get technically, then the better we can get at just, just passing and receiving on the move, which is another big focus point that we're trying to have all the time, you know? Mm. What's the competition like between different sports for athletes in South Africa? So because our because our high school system is so strong, um, boys are boys are picking their sports, their winter sport and their summer sport quite early on. So you know up until the end of primary school, which is it's kind of twelve thirteen, they're playing all the sports. But by the time they get to high school, especially at the, the bigger established high schools, uh, kind of the big single sex schools, they have to pick either hockey or rugby as a winter sport. So those are, and along with along with football, obviously, but football is not that played in in the big monastic boys' schools. It's played as like a third term sport, whereas yeah. rugby and hockey are second terms. So there's no clash there. Um, so the boys are picking quite early, and then you you usually have, you know, generally your hockey boys your hockey boys are quite good at cricket. Yeah. But by the time they're kind of 16, 17, they've, they've decided which one they're going to try and focus on the most. They're not allowed to specialize. Um, my school specifically, most, most schools, you're not allowed to specialize. You have to, you have to play a sport every term. Um, but they've, they've made up their minds of what, what winter sport they like the most by, by kind of year 10, year 11, I suppose. And they do two terms of that sport, would they? Yeah, we, we, we usually do... About our hockey season is about four months out of the school. Um, and then obviously your club season is probably five months, five and a half months. So, you know, then they're, then they're going off to play other sports. And then indoor is actually a summer sport for us. So a lot of boys are playing indoor hockey while they're playing their, uh, their cricket or the water polo. That seems that seems bizarre, Burke. <laughs> in all honesty, we should we should probably be on your on your system and, and play play hockey when when you guys play hockey. But it doesn't work that way, obviously, with the north and south. You know the, the hemisphere. I think we speak to a lot of people in the UK. They'd probably say hockey should be played in the summer anyway. <laughs> Do you not think that would, that would hurt cricket a lot though at the club level, especially? It depends. I think I think it depends. Because you 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 know you could play hockey midweek if you wanted to and cricket on the Saturday. There's not as much crossover as there used to be. Uh, yeah, 
I'm I'm from a, a hockey cricket club, and we're probably one of the the rare ones now where the majority of the first team hockey would be the majority of the first team cricket. Also, if you just delayed it a bit and you played April, May, June, or April, May even, that would make a big difference to playing deeps of December and start of January, which seems to be what we do, bizarrely. Well, the Eng- I mean, the English season is always starts so early and then you, you mm. play hockey in absolutely miserable weather for, for yeah. a month and a half. Yeah. I honestly don't think, I think this, this boys and girls season from September to whenever, I, don't, I think I had less than 10 days where it was dry. I reckon I got piss wet through mm. every day outside of that. It was just miserable. It was a really horrible year. Yeah. <laughs> that's, and that's when we should be indoors. That's cool. <laughs> but I'm talking, that was the whole season. Yeah. Um, just to give you a bit of the context, Gareth, what we're trying to do is um, me and Will have started producing a few bits and pieces because we feel that there's a bit of a gap for it within the English coach education stuff. There's a lot of the bigger picture stuff that they're leading towards. It's very holistic. It's very simple. and They don't delve into much content and much detail. Um, and I think that what we're trying to do is produce some content for coaches. And what we wanted to do with these interviews is just get to know some of the coaches through a series, series of questions and try and share a bit of what your background is and what your experiences are to try and help share for other coaches, which I don't think they get an insight to. Like I heard Paul Revington speak the other night. He was one of the first road shows that GB put on and he was excellent. But that's probably the first time anyone's heard from him. There's been a big change in 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 how hockey um, coach development has been delivered over the last five years. So five years ago, it was very much core skills. Um, uh, isolated practice was kind of like the ethos, and things like you know rolling out V drags. That is what we. That is what is going to make us a player, uh, and it's shifted completely to the other end of the spectrum now where it is all about um, constraint-based games. Everything must be a game. And I mean, I kind of rail against this, I call it evangelicalism. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's much more spectral in its approach. And it's okay to have, as long as you understand why you have a different approach and what you're getting out of it, it's okay to have that. And people need to have a richer debate around what their coaching looks like and how experience and research and personality influences your coaching. Sure. So that's, in my mind, the ethos of it. Sounds um, good. Yeah, so just, you know, feel free. <laughs> Be free. Um, so do you want to introduce yourself briefly, what your background is, where you're coaching, what you've done? Sure. Cool. So um, my name is Gareth Ewing. I'm the, the men's national coach uh, for, for the South African men's hockey team. I have been a coach for more than 25 years, sort of since I started playing and, and coaching as a student, basically. And then it's progressed over the years. I've been a full-time coach for more than 15 years now. I'm the head coach of hockey at St. John's College, which is an independent boys' school in, in Johannesburg. And um, on top of that, obviously, I coach the men's national team. Um, that's a voluntary position in South Africa. It's not, it's not remunerated at all. So I um, still need my day job. Uh, in between, I've, I've pretty much coached um, every level in South Africa. I've uh, been lucky enough to, to coach across the state uh, setups, um, men's and women's teams. And um, 
I've progressed into into the national team through the under 21s. I was head coach of the under 21s at the last Junior World Cup, and I've been an assistant coach to to the men's side for for several years. I've actually been in the national setup in South Africa since 2006. So uh, that's me basically. I've done some international coaching uh, in the USA and and also in the UK quite a while ago. And uh, I consider myself to be a professional coach, basically. So, yeah, that's my background. I'm going to go into the questions. Have you seen them already? I have had a look at them, but I haven't really thought about them that much. I wanted to kind of just be spontaneous as well. That's good. No, I like that. Um, well, I'll ask the questions and then I'll go back and forth a bit with you as well. Um, so, from your experiences, how is the game changing and where do you feel it's going next? It's interesting for me. Um, the game has become so much more dynamic. Uh, it's just, you know, obviously as the rules have changed and I think as, as the athleticism has increased, I think that the game is just getting faster and faster and faster and, and that much more physical as well. I think the umpiring is, has, especially at the very elite level, has, has almost become quite permissive in terms of how much contact there is and guys are really getting stuck into each other and the teams that are dominating with physicality are, are dominating on the rankings. Uh, I think that's that's one of the big things for me that that's that's coming through and, and just the speed at which the game is played. And I think those those unstructured moments have become they've always been important, but I think they're becoming even more important. Teams can nullify each other because defensively and technically they're so good. But those moments where things are just getting messy and, and ugly and people have to improvise and use their skills and their physicality is starting to dominate. So for me it's about how I wouldn't say the game's loose, but definitely the speed and the physicality is, is is really increased. And I think it's only going to get more so. I think they might end up having to change some rules to try to slow things down because I don't think the officials can keep up. Talking about that sort of that chaos and messy nature of games where you're feeling that the, the physicality is a dominant factor, how would you coach? What sort of principles would you encourage within your teams to take advantage of those moments? The first thing, the first thing is a basic one. You know, everybody's level of conditioning has got to be got to be better, and I think there's got to be an element of being able to control yourself in contact. So there's a lot of technical stuff about about balance and about about core stuff. But but in terms of the hockey itself, I think we've got to just make sure that we're always encouraging people to play when things are unstructured. So, you're, you're, you know, whatever your defensive and attacking principles are, you've got to be ready to defend very quickly and you've got to be ready to transition to attack very quickly. So the, so those transitional phases, as things break down and, and playing more than one phase at a time, so whatever exercise you, you're encouraging and whatever, whatever you're training, it's got to have more than one phase to it. You've got to throw an extra ball in. You've got to play for a sustained period of time at a very high intensity where decisions have to get made on the fly. And, and that means, you know, physical demand and mental demand. So, so kind of encouraging that chaos. Don't, don't have, a, have a, a start and an end to an exercise too often. Let it play itself out. Let it get messy and then, and then stop and discuss and learn and think about where, where you can start to, to take advantage of that stuff. Because if ultimately if you can counterattack really well but at the same time count to defend really well you're going to give yourself a chance to compete against any team which mistakes that you've made in your career have been the most valuable and why thinking i knew a lot 
was a big mistake. You, you kind of you get you get through stages in your career where you you kind of start getting appointments and you you start thinking that maybe you do know something because your team's winning and all that kind of thing. And it's it's almost being presumptuous that you that you you've kind of made it. Um, and I'd like to go back and be a little bit more humble and a little bit more um, uh, self-aware, particularly some of my my, rea- my interactions with senior coaches, I think. Um, but but biggest mistake as well, I think, is just being a little bit too didactic as a coach when I began. You know, I was the boss and, and, and what I said was, was how it was going to be. And, and we all know that you've got to collaborate these days. You can't just coach and, and, and give instructions and expect people to be able to go and, go and follow them. People have to, have to be able to make decisions. So those are, those are mistakes I made. Um, no, no particular incident. I can think of a, a certain World Cup match in uh, 2017 where I kept saying up on the mic that we should keep flicking penalty corners. And I think if we'd gone to a variation, we might have got the point to go to the knockout game. But... Uh, yeah, there's uh, not much you can do about things like that. You can, it's easy to look back and say that you should have done something differently. A 2020 hindsight. Um, exactly. So how, how do you feel the, the impact of changing that pedagogical approach, the, the, you know, going from didactic, I assume, to a more Socratic method? Have you found the impact of that both on yourself and on your athletes? So a lot of a lot of the athletes that I've worked I'm working with now I've obviously worked with them a long time because I've been in the system so long. So some of these some of these kids I've, I've coached since they were 15, you know now they're now they're pushing 30. So they've they've kind of grown up with me and and I think they they can see a difference in me and they can see my change in terms of my outlook. So being being willing to be a little bit more vulnerable and and being willing to acknowledge that I don't have all the answers, being able to stand in front of a room with with a video or, or as we're preparing for a game and saying to a group of players, some of whom have got 180 caps, and saying, guys, I don't think, I don't quite know how we should do this. I want to know what you guys think. These are the options I have on the table. What do you want to bring to the table? So they've seen, I think, the change in me, and, and that's that's kind of, open them up a little bit and, and help them understand that it is a dynamic situation for all of us. So from that point of view, it's, it's changed a lot of my relationships um, with, with the players. I've always, I think, had strong relationships with the players, but I think now it's becoming a lot more honest and a lot more personal. And as much as I'm still kind of the decision maker and, and the ultimate person in authority who carries the can, I think it's, it's brought a lot of us closer together. There's another thing in there, really, about quite a few people will have these these issues. If you're coaching a group of people or similar people, the same sort of individuals, for an extended period of time, how do you keep that fresh? And how, how do you keep challenging them and giving them an environment within which they can flourish? It is a difficult one because what often happens as well, again, hockey is a small environment. We're all very close to each other is that, they're not just somebody you've known since he was a 15-year-old high school hockey player. He's become, you know, he's become a friend. You know, he was at your wedding, or you were at his 21st, or all that kind of thing. So, to have that, have that closeness, but also have that distance when it comes to the professional relationship. So, so you've got to have, you've got to be respectful enough about where the boundaries are and in what environment you're in, in terms of what kind of degree of comfort you can have. So it is, it is quite difficult. Um, 
In terms of, of the staleness, I think that can be a real problem. In my current case, I think because, again, there's growth of the player and there's growth of me as a coach, you know, that, that, that's made it a little bit easier. And because the challenges are so different, so when you're working with somebody in the age group level, suddenly to then work with them at an Olympic qualifier or a World Cup level, that level is so different. The level of concentration, the level of input has to change so much that 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 keeps things fresh. The other thing and the final thing is I think I think my tenure as coach will be relatively short before I ultimately do move on. So, so that, that keeps things keeps things interesting and there's not going to be that much time for things to stagnate at this particular level at least. What is the best motivational environment you've created and, and why was it a motivational environment? In, 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 my, in my recent experience, uh, I've also been a university coach uh, and I learned a hell of a lot there because that's a, a very competitive, very emotional environment. And you, you can imagine everybody's young, everybody's really out up on testosterone and physicality and, and it becomes, it's a really good place to cut your teeth. And I just remember in that environment was, was we, we got to a point where, where players were motivating each other because they were, they were bringing the competitive standards to training, whether that was in the gym or, or in the pitch. And, and I think it, it came from a group of players who came in with, a, with, a, with a, a, a kind of a chunk of guys came in all at once, and they were all quite young, and they needed to, to really impress and push themselves quite hard. So they were going to the gym, and they were setting the standard. It wasn't actually the old blokes setting the standard. They were quite comfortable. But because there was a, a large intake of young guys, it became this opportunity to, to just start afresh. And I think it, it's, it was quite useful. So it became a self-motivating environment. And the guys started to see the, the importance of the training away from what I was doing with them. And I didn't go to the gym. I had, a, I had a strength and conditioning guy to do that for me. So I wasn't in the gym. I wasn't there looking over their shoulders. They were doing this you know, independently. So, so any environment where you can create independent space – where people are motivating themselves to train and motivating then motivating each other through the individual examples they're setting becomes, becomes really important. You know, in our national setup at the moment, obviously we can't get out. Um, we, we can't get together. We almost, we never get together as it is. But, you know, the guys, are, the guys have actually set up their own kind of core sessions on Zoom, which they're doing, doing every day. So they're, they're holding each other accountable in their own way. And again, I don't, I don't look in on that. I just trust the guys to do it. You know, when we get out together on the pitch, I'm going to be able to see who's doing the extra work and who isn't. So it's about being able to self-motivate. And I think the higher, the higher the level you go, the more self-motivated you've got to be. Nobody can, nobody can make you do the stuff you need to do because if you don't do it, you're going to fall by the wayside anyway. With that, Gareth, obviously they've been, they've been driving that because they're self-motivated. But have you done anything to allude to creating that within your culture or is that a case that you believe that at that level they are that self-motivated? No, not at all. I mean, there's there's obviously a huge cultural spread in a country like South Africa as well. So what motivates one person doesn't necessarily motivate somebody else. So again, a big focus for me has just been about being honest about what you're doing. So, you know, if you want to go out and, and you want to you have 12 beers with your mates the night before a training session, I can't stop you. In fact, I'm never even going to know because we're not centralized. Um, so it becomes about your own personal accountability and what, what, you, what you can and can't do. So being comfortable with being by yourself and, and doing stuff that nobody's going to find out about except you will know. 
you know, at some point, obviously, it's going to catch up with you if your lifestyle is poor. I mean, it's just one example, but just trying to just trying to make people have a, have a higher sense of responsibility towards the team versus just to themselves. And ultimately, you know, a lot of, lot more players are coming around than than are not complying. I think you probably asked the same sort of question I was going to ask. To be honest, Elliot, which is worrying, to be honest, probably in a better uh, way. <laughs> Zone or man-to-man and why? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because, I mean, from, from where we are in our relatively small hockey environment, a lot of our hockey that gets played is, is man-to-man, you know, at state level and at higher club level. But you, you're starting to see a lot more, lot more zonal play creeping in. And it's something that we've paid attention to, as I said earlier, in the national setup, is to be better at, at pressing zonally. I don't think we'll ever be able to defend um, in our deep zone, in a zonal setup. I don't think we have, again, we don't quite have the technical skill yet. But um, for me, I think you have to be zonal because of the way the game is being played. If you try and chase people around, you have to then really back your physicality to be able to do so. And I, I just don't think anybody can can live with it these days. And as soon as it becomes unstructured, again, if you if you're trying to chase people around the pitch, you can't play the game quickly enough. So from a zonal point of view, I think it gives you more time. I think it gives you more space to, to organize. And then at some point, I think there's still got to be that transition in your deep zone into really, really tight physical man-to-man. And it's just a question of how deep um, do you need to go to be able to do that. And the teams who can hold their zonal shapes for longer are the teams that are going to be successful. You were saying how you've transitioned the team to be better at, at zone and Cultural is a lot man to man that's played. What have been the pitfalls that you've faced in terms of that transition? It's a trust thing, to be honest. You know, you have to trust yourself to look after your zone, and you have to trust the people around you to look after their zones. So we're very, very simplistically will say to somebody, look, if there's four people in your zone, opposition players in your zone, you're still going to look after your zone. You don't need to panic about that. Or on the other side, if if you're in your zone and, and the man who's in your zone leads out, don't follow him. Don't go back into that man-to-man mentality because one person getting pulled out of his space is going to be exploited by the opposition. So it's, it's about having people trust it and having people slowly change their mentality to be, to be comfortable not chasing somebody around the pitch and understanding the importance of keeping the shape. Do you feel indoor hockey is an important development tool for players? If so, or if not, why? I absolutely love indoor hockey. We have grown indoor hockey in South Africa exponentially over the the last few years. We have a a huge youth tournament that gets played every year, and it's very, very popular amongst the youngsters. I think we suffer in terms of of, of our facilities, but... And just in terms of indoor hockey as a game, it's just full of little microcosms is the way I've always thought about it. You know, you, you've got to have really good tight control. You've got to be able to pass to receive on the move and play under direct pressure. And there's really nowhere to hide on an indoor court. So you have this slightly easier surface to play on, in my opinion, which, which, which means that you can pay attention to some of the tactical stuff a bit more. I just think it, it helps you grow and, and worry about really small things in the game in a, in a, in like a really prepackaged format. And ultimately, it's, it's a small-sided game, isn't it? It's, it's, um, it's played 
in such a small space, you've got to make a decision. You've got to take your responsibility. It's very easy to be exposed. And I think developmentally, first of all, it's a fantastic game to watch. But secondly, it, it's, it just, it's just a really, really good way of, of teaching players how to play the game under pressure. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think, you know, there's loads of goal scoring opportunities. So when talking about keepers, they get a really good time out of it, particularly junior keepers. I also think, you know, going back to kind of what you were saying in terms of your current view of developing your international squad, indoor is so good for your basics. You know, it's quick hand speed, smooth receipt, um, trying to face forward under quite extreme pressure because if you turn your back on the game, you're in a lot of trouble. You know, the, the fast decision making. I, 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 I'm a huge believer in in the benefits that it has. You see in this country when kids come back from playing indoor over Christmas and they go into games, their defending has gone through the roof because they're mobile and they're low and they're on their forehand all the time. So just that it is like the game under a microscope all those principles and values and techniques that are the building blocks of hockey are, are magnified, I think. And, and again, I think this, the, you know, the, the error gets punished so quickly that, that you, need to, you need to learn, A, to, to compensate for errors because they're inevitable, but, but also just to understand that the, the significance of every action, you know, and, and the, the quicker you get your head around that, uh, the quicker you can become an elite-level player. One of the things me and Elliot have spoken quite a lot about recently in terms of practice design is replicating game consequence, uh, which I think is something that's quite um, readily forgotten and when people do certain sessions. And you're like, yeah, but if you miss the target, what's the consequence in the game? And as you say, like indoor, those consequences are huge because mm. you're so close to the goal the whole time. Absolutely. And I think, I think you're right. I think too often... You know, you'll you'll do a training drill or whatever it might be, and, and you, as you said, there is no consequence. You miss the target or you miss your tackle. You know, what is it? And it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a punishment or a physical punishment, but there's got to be some kind of significance that it, that particularly entails some extra mileage in the legs. Because if you lose the ball in any game, ultimately that's what happens: is you're running back, and that wears you down over a period of time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you could replay one moment in your career. What would it be and why? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting one because to, to take a, any, every, every single action or every single decision I've made over the, over the last 25 years has led to this point, hasn't it? So, so philosophically, it's, it's all been part of a process and it's all been part of a learning. I think if anything I could change over the years, it would probably be to, to, to just – always put my, myself in the shoes of the player that I'm talking to or dealing with and just just trying to be as empathetic as possible um, and just trying to remind myself that they care about it just as much as I do, even if they're making a mistake or they're, they're not in a good headspace. So there's no, there's no, there's no specific, specific moment. I think everything I've done has made me the coach I am today and, and I, I can only be grateful for those opportunities, whether they were they were positive experiences or negative experiences at the time. What would you um, say as being your kind of like standout highlight in your coaching career? I think for me, the, the most important one professionally, I've had some wonderful experiences. I've been lucky enough to go to quite a few World Cups, but to, to take the, the team to the Junior World Cup uh, as a head coach um, when we went to, went to um, India, 
that was a that was a huge moment for me. Just in terms of having had a good length of time with with the group and being able to pick them early and play a lot of games, uh, and we felt really really prepared. Um, and just the the success in terms of from from a South African context to to get into the top ten of a tournament had not happened for nearly twenty years, uh, and in fact longer. So. To, to, to get 10th place at a World Cup uh, in the context of some of the elite nations, you know, they would consider that to be a tragedy. But in our case, that was a huge mental step forward. And I can see with the, the, the players that were in that setup who are now um, in my senior group, the, their mentality is around beating that record and, and moving forward with that. And it's just changed what we consider to be a good performance. So, so for me, that was hugely important um, mentally and professionally. Being a bit less philosophical, what was a really fun moment for you? So there's, a, there's a, quite a funny little thing that, that happened. Uh, we have a tournament in South Africa called the Varsity Sports Tournament, and we, um, we have a big, big derby between our, the two universities in Johannesburg. And we were 4-0 down with one minute to go in the semi-finals of a tournament and um, we actually ended up winning the game on penalties. So you can just imagine the self-destruct that was going on on the opposite side, but you can also just imagine how well we were playing to manage to find four goals in a minute. So that was rather exciting <laughs> and uh, something that, you know, we, that, that group of guys we always have a little reminiscence about and have a good chuckle about it. Even the guys on the opposition, they, they can see the funny side nowadays. So. I mean, I you've, really got, you've really got to question what the opposition are doing at their centre. <laughs> have another uh, yes. <laughs> yes. I was going to say, I don't think my guys could score four goals and get back to the halfway line in time to do it all. <laughs> yeah, thank God for us. The clock was getting stopped. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was an interesting day. It was... Uh, and I mean, I mean, the last one was on the buzzer, of course, penalty corner, mm. um, and yeah. it was probably the worst penalty corner of, of the whole whole game. But the the goalie had somehow decided to lie down to hedge his bets, and then it it, it hit their first wave and kind of looped over the goalie while he was lying on the floor watching. <laughs> the goal. That's 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 the stress of the of the momentum of a game, isn't it? Like exactly. uh, I've got to stop it now. Like change of behaviours. Um, brilliant if you could pass uh, if you could only pass on one piece of advice to others what would it be in my position as a coach I'll, I'll use that as an example as a head coach is that to make sure your whole coaching team is a, is fully involved in the coaching process you can't run the whole process by yourself you can't make all the decisions you can't design all the drills you can't design all the programs you have to collaborate and you have to make sure that you're pulling other people into your process because if you don't, you're just gonna you're just gonna kill yourself. To be honest, really as simple as that. You know, that's the message I would I'll give to my whoever takes over from me. I'll just say, you can't do it all yourself. How would you go about knitting together that in in a sort of mechanical way? So if you're looking at you know you've got an S and C guy, your assistants, your video, how, or or multiple assistant manager. How do you go about knitting that together and trusting what you've put in place? 
Well, you used the word there, which I had to start with, is you have to trust people. So the first thing you've got to do is make sure the people you, you, you get on board, you have an existing relationship with, or you under, or you, whether it's a, a personal relationship or, or professionally, you, you know what kind of standing they're going to bring. And then you've got to let them run with it. You know, you, you're obviously the, the person who's responsible ultimately, and you, you're the one who has to give that vision. But you must trust that they are going to make good decisions on your behalf. And that means, whether that means when you say to one of your assistant coaches, right, we need a receiving drill down that end of the pitch, and I'm not going to be involved, um, you've got to back him to be able to go and do that job. And, and it just comes down to trust, really, and, and, and an ability to, at times, sit around a table and share your thoughts and, and, and work together. But other times, it means being able to work independently and trust people to work independently. Who has been influential in the development of your career? Quite a few people. I think a, a guy who we all know and, and have some common knowledge of is Paul Revington has been, was been hugely influential on me, just not only as a, somebody I learned from coaching with and against him, but just the way he did it the level of focus and that he brings to everything that he does and also the level of intellect. I think in the South African context, he was, he was just miles ahead of everybody else. Um, so he was very inspirational to me and he's, he's always been somebody that I consider to be a, a friend and a mentor. Um, then going back very many years to when I was still a player is, a, is a, an old mate of mine named Phil Wallace, who used to play hockey for East Grinstead back in the dark ages. And, um, he came out to South Africa basically as a gap year to coach and he, he really inspired me to, to become a coach and to, to make a living out of coaching and, and to try and reach the highest level. And, you know, he, he actually set me up to go overseas and do some coaching there. So very influential on me. And probably the last two are my parents because they've always backed me to, to coach hockey in, in, a, in a country that where hockey is really not a job. <laughs> and um, I've got myself into a position where, I can I can make make a semi living for myself, and, and they've always supported me the whole way through. Can you summarise the key points of your philosophy or approach, and have there been any key moments that have helped shape it? So again, go back to what we spoke about earlier: going from very didactic to to being a lot more open and a lot more um, accessible to people. So, you know, the things that I'm, I'm, I'm really focusing on at the moment from a, from a philosophy point of view is encouraging dynamic play. So can you pass and receive on the move? Uh, if you can't, then how do we help you to do that? And that, I mean, that, that sounds incredibly simple, but, but that, is, that is really what, all that I'm doing at the moment because within that, you, you can just layer on decision-making, you can layer on conditioning, you can layer on technical and tactical and focusing everything on 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 that, you know, can you pass and receive on the move, and 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 how do you encourage that across the board? So even at this supposedly elevated level that, that I'm working at, at the moment, it all boils down to that. So a lot of what I will do, and a lot of the way I'm thinking about the game is just is just along those lines. And I know that sounds incredibly simplistic, but but that's where I am at the moment. You can tell you've worked with Revs. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the key, though, to a lot of philosophies is distilling down your beliefs so that they are simple, clear, transferable. And, and that's where you get to the real essence of, 
of how you see the game and the best way, I think, to relate that to people. Do you find that with, your philo- with that sort of approach and philosophy that when you're delivering in school or university or senior men's, it's the same messages, but you are just turning up and down the performance level or the environment factors that are around? Very, very much so. And again, often when you, when you present that, the reaction from quite a few people is, oh, is that it? You know, they're expecting yeah. something more. And the other thing is I believe quite strongly is you can only coach, I don't know what I don't know. Hmm. So I, I know that I'm learning. I've still got a hell of a lot to learn at this level and at every level. And, and I, I can only coach what I, what I learn and what I know. And as I, as I learn and as I more, get more exposed, I'm gonna, I'm, I might change that again. But for me, it really it is that simple, and it's it's encouraging people to 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 coach to coach the simplicity is actually quite difficult. And I think mm. we all, as younger coaches, we talk a lot, and you'll see a huddle after a game, and it's it's twenty minutes, and you think, what the hell are they talking about? And meanwhile, you just need to wrap up and, and go look at video before you're in a position to give any kind of opinion on anything. So rather rather keep things short and and, and keep your information specific. Yeah, you were talking about um, you don't know what you don't know, which is one of my favourite phrases. Where do you get your learning influences from? What what are you currently looking at at the moment? How do you identify those areas that you don't have an understanding of? Yeah, I I try to talk to as many people as possible. I try to talk to people who are not in my setup because their perceptions of things are, are quite important because. It may be very, very obvious to me, but when when they say to me, well, you know, they ask me a question about something, and, I, and they're seeing a thing in a completely different way. So you need to just try. I, I try and expand as much as I can, and I try and I try and engage as much as I can with with coaches. So and and, and at every level, it doesn't just have to be people who are you know higher up the chain than I am. It's just about what I can what I can learn from them and what I can see. And try and try and try and watch as much as possible. And sometimes, you, sometimes as coaches, I think we watch a hockey match, but we watch too much with an analytical eye instead of just watching the game and taking the game in as a spectacle. And and the impression that you get from that game can actually in itself lead to a revelation. When you just when you're too busy thinking about well, was that midfielder cutting across that line for a specific reason, and rather just watch the the game as a spectacle and then see where it takes you at the end. That in itself can be quite interesting, and, and then also just talking to older players, players who've played the game at a, at a higher level. It's funny how the game again it doesn't fundamentally change, um, and the way they used to talk about things or the way they would they would train things. Some of that stuff is still incredibly relevant. And Elliot, you were talking earlier about South Africans who who had high tech high levels of technical skill, and then you look back at the older guys, and they tra- they practiced technical stuff so much more in my opinion they did a lot more hitting and trapping than you see players doing these days they do a lot more going down to the turf by themselves and and, and zigzagging through cones than than players do these days and and to talk to them and to learn from them and to get their perspective is quite interesting sometimes it's a little bit of oh, we're living in the past but some of it's really really relevant so i think i get sources of people to give me information and to give me learning rather than, you know, banging out video all the time. Mm. But as important as it is, I think the interactions are more important than, than sitting by yourself and looking at a clip. 
That's been one of the really good things of how we've been doing these recently. We've been speaking to such a variety of people. It, it either clarifies things for you or completely makes you question things just by getting a different perspective, seeing life through a different lens. I think that element of how people have practiced traditionally and having more of a, a technical focus, uh, there's this huge mindset shift, I think, of mastery. I mean, to learn, to learn to hit the ball, you have to hit the ball repeatedly and you have to be very reflective while you're doing that to you know, analyze your own thing, be purposeful in, in that interaction with the ball. And I think that's a mindset that is much harder to capture now than I think maybe it has been previously. And I, I mean, I don't really know why that is. I think there's a need, isn't there, for some for a lot of coaches coming through, and I've been there myself, is you don't know what you don't know, so you go and try and seek stuff that you want to know, and then you aren't sure how that fits in with your own philosophy or you haven't got a philosophy and you haven't reflected on it well enough. Whereas now I find that the stuff I go out to seek and find is stuff then that I bring back to my own philosophy and I'll still go, well, that fits in here like this. Whereas I think a lot of people try to present that as their own or they try to fit fit it in because they want to or they think it's popular or it's trendy or whatever it is but I think you still got to be able to put your hand up and go this is what I'm about and I'm sure that if you were coaching a different nation Gareth it would be the same but if I was coaching Belgium I'd still be coaching in the way that I'm coaching it not necessarily the way that you know I'd try and do the social differences and try and make it more relevant to them but I'd still be trying to push my philosophy in the way I deliver and coach. There's an element there though of the the whole Twitter filter thing that we create our own filter and therefore we only find information that fits into our view which is what twitter does doesn't it It, you know it shapes what you see Uh, and working out ways that we disrupt that to challenge you know what we think we know and see if we can identify areas that we don't that's a real ego seems to be the other one and i think you alluded to it as well gareth where you said previously i thought i knew everything or I thought I was slightly better than I am. And I think most of the coaches, certainly that have interviewed, have all said the same thing is I used to think that this was the way to do it and I was right. But actually I've realized there's a million ways to do it or <laughs> I'm wrong. <laughs> I think, I think we, live in a, we live in a less patient world mm. as well. Um, and I think we, we want it to be fixed now. Yeah. Uh, so people are not, not happy to go out and, and do, do a skill over and over and over in their own time until they get it right or to, to sit with the video clip of that, that skill and break it down for themselves. They're waiting for somebody to do it for them or, or they, look, they want to go and do something, something flashy. Or they want to buy the upgrade that just gets them there. Absolutely. Yeah, and so in, in high school, you'll see 50 kids all drag flicking at the edge of the circle really, really badly when they could be off doing some yeah. ball handling, you know, but, but because the drag flick is, is the sexy thing. And I think there's, a, there's elements of human nature there as well too, you know. I've read quite a lot recently about traits of Generation Z, which is like 10 to 23-year-olds, I think, at the moment. And there's loads of stuff in there around reduced attention span and seeking instant gratification to do with just technology, isn't it? You know, everything's so accessible so readily. And maybe this period that we're in now of isolation maybe gives people that, that pause to, to develop a bit of a change of mindset 
or we might just suddenly have isolation lifted and then everything goes back to what it was like. I mean, I don't know, but it, it might just allow that generation a little bit, a little bit of space to question that. Well, I think, I think people have to entertain themselves a little bit more just at the moment, which uh, ties into that. Whether, whether you're entertaining yourself with Netflix or not, you're still alone while you're doing it. So I do think that's quite important. And I do think um, this whole period of time, however long it's going to be, and I think we're all kind of fearful it's going to be quite a, quite a long time, mm. is going to change mindsets. So if you had to nail out your defensive principles that you would be supporting, what would they be? Or what are your headlines? Um, decide on how many people are always going to be defending at any one time and never deviate from that. You see, you see very good teams are quite good at that, in my opinion. And also, the what are you doing when you defend in the first three seconds after losing the ball? Those two, those two things are, are two things that I spend a lot of time chatting to guys about. Mm. Do you want to delve into the first one slightly more? So how many, how many people do you realistically think you need to keep behind the ball to make sure that the opposition is not going to score when they turn it over? No. Um, I get you. Yeah. Could be five, could be six, could be three, could be nine, depending on, on who you are. <laughs> depending on how good your goalie is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so so we're, we're, we're doing a lot of, I mean, I, I'll say it to you guys quite freely. We're doing a lot of that, a lot of work on counter defence. Because we we think that it, we don't hang on to the ball all that well. Yeah. So if we're comfortable, rather being ready before when we lose the ball, we're going to be a lot more competitive over a sixty-minute game. And, and with me and Elliot had a big discussion. I would say, to put it mildly, earlier around my my feeling is that defending occurs all the time, and therefore, if we're with or without the ball, and therefore, if we're doing a defensive principles workshop or discussion or hangout then actually our counter-principles, counter-protection principles are part of that. So That's I mean, not what like, we were arguing about. We were arguing because you took 32 slides to explain that. <laughs> and you were meant to have six minutes. It was good detail. Um, <laughs> uh, there was also, you know, so for me, like I always talk about having three people on the, on the line to goal in, uh, while we're in possession, just in case. Mm. Um, I also think also think the the discussion about what what your counter cover players do again in those first three seconds of losing the ball. What is their action? Mm. Is it to mark a player? Is it to to get on the critical line? Is it to get further back in the field? Like what are, what are what are your actions? Yeah, I mean for for me it, it depends quite a lot on what what's ha- happening elsewhere. But I would be saying you can't get flat. So you've got to have layers and shape to it. So generally I'd talk about sort of like a triangle um, and, and protecting the hotline, protecting that line of the ball to goal because otherwise they can go quicker. So there's an element in there of protect that, that will delay and it will allow us to use the sideline eventually to, to turn them over. So keeping it on the ball side, protecting the hotline to goal, they would be the, the big things for me. And then whether or not we do that through pressure or dropping away, don't think yeah. it matters. It's just as long as it's cohesive. I have lots of conversations with my players about how high the defending players are in the pitch mm-hmm. um, because we've had lots of, lots of examples of 
really good in terms of having guys in counter cover positions, but they are they're thirty meters away from the ball. Mm. So and that's what I'm thinking is how far up are we? Where's the guard? And can we win it back early rather than having to counter defend all the way back? And and is your and is the guard one of your players who are in counter cover positions, or is he one of your attacking players? I would treat him as an attacking player, but he has got a his I first would. priority would be counter cover. Right. This is this is my idea around counter protection, counter cover. So guard player directly behind within playing distance so within 10-15 metres and then this so he, he'll be your first ball of transfer if you if you shift the ball around the back as well possibly but not necessarily so it could be that that guard position is a different pivot on the pitch or, it, or we don't even use it as a pivot but it's there in case we need to play directly deep so right. it's just asking that question to draw them across a little bit maybe okay and then he would be one of the three men ready to defend. So having three men on wherever that hotline would be, so wherever the ball is, so we're constantly changing our position so that we've got three men, again, within 10 metres of it probably. Mm. Um, but, and, and within that, making sure they've got shape yeah. and layers. Uh, and then the other thing that I would talk about is having good numbers around the ball in possession. So things like our small unit play principles, um, playing, playing inside 10 metres is a big thing I would talk about. So like one-twos, give and go. And, and that kind of links to like this concept from football of Gagan pressing that Jurgen Klopp has at Liverpool. So playing inside short spaces so that when you lose it, you've immediately got pressure on it. So trying to trap it in there. I think that the guard has the responsibility to put frontal pressure on as soon as we turn the ball over. So if we turn the ball over, they are bang, straight on, uh, whereas the others will be tucking and covering. And it might just give us enough, particularly with this idea of keeping it in that area, might just give us enough time and space to either win it in there and, and delay it escaping there or get numbers back. I think it's a good. I think it's a good. It's a good point or a good question to ask because, in any turnover, for three seconds after every turnover, and I've said three seconds already, but for three seconds after every turnover, you can hit the ball to the centre forward, no matter what the opposition does. Yeah, I used to talk about keeping the ball inside five meters of where we lost it, mm. uh, and and maintaining a distance. So if you're the person who's lost the ball, you have to stay within five meters of the ball. Mm. And that's how we lengthen the transition. So we obviously want to lengthen transition phase if we've lost it and shorten mm. it if we've just won it. Out of interest, and this is totally random and off topic, but how physically prepared do, do you feel your guys are ready for, or were ready for Tokyo? Having been we obviously were, training apart. Mm. So we, we, we suffer from a lack of science uh, in, our, in our program because our budget doesn't allow for proper data gathering. Um, but I think conditioning in terms of, in terms of um, consistently across the, the team, we were as best, as, as good as we've ever been. Cool. And I think that would have only have continued to improve moving towards Tokyo. How are you feeling about the delay? Uh, it's not good. Uh, very difficult mentally. I've had, I've had my, my own personal challenges with getting to a multi-sport event. 
Yeah. Uh, Glasgow, the Glasgow Commonwealth Games, I was the assistant coach and uh, the our Olympic Federation didn't process my accreditation. <clears throat> so when I went, so when the team flew, we were in Bisham Abbey for our last week of training. So when the team flew to Glasgow, I flew back to Johannesburg. Oh my God. And they went with three people, three staff. So I've had, I've had my challenges. Um, so that's, that's, you know, one thing. Um, I think we would have been really good. It's quite ironic. We, we'd organized to go to Italy and Spain immediately prior to Tokyo for <laughs> test matches. So that clearly was not going not to happen. And we had got a really nice training venue in Japan that was going to pay for us for 10 days to train in Japan right. as well. So we were going to be really, really prepared by our standards. And, and I would have just rebuilt that again. So um, getting European teams to come out in, in January, February, to come train in the good weather yeah, and and start that process all over again. Were, were Great Britain coming out in the build-up to Tokyo? They were, but we weren't going to play against them. Um, they didn't want to play test matches, which was fair enough, but they basically wanted us to play like over a weekend. And for me to put my team together with my budgetary constraints to play two games in, in two days is just it's not worth the money. Yeah. So we couldn't do anything about that, unfortunately. We, we just said to them, no. That's Thanks for your time anyway, Gareth. Yeah. No, it's a pleasure. I, I really enjoyed it. Really fun. So thanks to Gareth for dropping in for a really open and honest chat. I'm sure we all wish him and the team the best of luck for the Olympics in Tokyo. I hope you're all looking forward to hearing some more left-field thinking soon. Stay safe.